I'm really grateful for this journey because while I went out to go track down, you know, Bill Gates to learn his secret to negotiating, life actually gave me the lessons I really needed to learn. Welcome, everybody. This is For the Love of Money, where we are making you unapologetic about your pursuit of success by sharing the tools, tips, and stories of those who have already made it. My name is Chris Harder, and each week I will bring you incredible guests in order to prove that when good people make good money, they do great things. Hey, everybody, welcome back to another mini episode of For the Love of Money, episodes that I like to call My Two Cents. And today I'm actually giving you an inside peek into my elite level mastermind. I'm sitting down with best selling author Alex Benayan. And what I do is I bring guests in and we interview the guests so we can learn about business and learn about life and move our lives and our businesses to the next level as a group. Now, here's what's really cool to be in this mastermind, this particular one is $30,000 per year. So we're talking really high level people and high level businesses. And when I bring the guests in, we talk about real raw things. And you're going to see that when I let you listen in on this conversation that we all have doing Q&A with best-selling author Alex Benayan. Now, if you're not familiar with this book, The Third Door, it's one of the best, hottest books on the market right now. And it teaches you literally that how to find the third door in when the front door is, has too long of a line and when you don't have access to the secret door, there's always a third door. There's always a, a way that you can meet anyone you want or accomplish anything you want. So this is a conversation about resourcefulness and about perseverance. And it's also full of a lot of laughs as well. So you're going to love his stories. You're going to love his answers. By the way, don't forget, I recently launched my brand new course called The Money Principles. Now listen, this course should be 1000 or $2,000, but I launched it at a fraction of that price because this time around, I want everybody who needs the course to be able to afford the course. That meant a lot to me this time. So go check that out at thetruthaboutmoney.com, thetruthaboutmoney.com, because that is exactly what this is. The truths that you were not taught in school and that you were not taught by your parents. These are the new rules of money that if you're struggling, it's because someone has not shared these with you. Go check it out at thetruthaboutmoney.com. So we are in for a treat now. And uh, Mr. Alex Benayan is hiding outside there. I want to give you a proper introduction, my friend. And by the way, you just snuck in the back. So let me give you a hug first. How you doing? All right. So this fine gentleman deserves a proper introduction because I read his book and I was like, oh, I needed to interview this guy. And then I interviewed him and I was like, oh, this is one of the most epic people ever. And uh, then we started um, speaking at the same events together. And you guys, there is, I can't name somebody who is a better onstage speaker than Alex. And that's not because he's standing here that I'm saying this. There's a lot of great onstage speakers that I've, I've met in my life um, and seen, obviously. But I've never seen somebody entertain an audience so well, deliver a message so well without it feeling rehearsed or without it feeling manufactured. I've, I've never seen somebody with this perfect mix before. And that's exactly what you do on stage. So if you guys ever get a chance to see Alex speak on stage anywhere, you have to carve out time to go do that. It, it's a treat. But that's not why he's here today. 
All of you have his book, The Third Door. And it's a book about finding your way in. Remember, our theme is excellence. Excellence in relationship building. Finding your way into any relationship that you know is important to you because there is always a way. There's always that third door. And uh, the first door is the obvious one, the front door. And a lot of times it's too crowded, too big of a line. The second door is like the VIP door where the celebrities sneak in and you don't wait in lines. But a lot of you don't have access to that door. So what do you do when you're a college kid? Not anymore. But what do you do when you're a college kid and you want to meet Bill Gates and you want to meet Tim Ferriss and you want to meet all of these epic human beings? You create the third door. And that's what he wrote about. And what he teaches is some of the most important stuff on the planet. So we're going to have a bit of a fireside chat here today. But please give your warmest possible welcome for best-selling author Alex Benayan. Um, do you have a side that you prefer? We're going to pull them closer. Oh, for sure. Let's, uh, can we shut off the, uh, the thing right here so it's not in our eyes? Okay, so, I know, they're a great group, you're going to love them. Okay, so, first things first, thank you for being here. Of course, thank you, man. Uh, we had a beach walk the other morning, you and I and Lori, and we were talking about what makes you happy in life, and, you know, what is your favorite part of life right now, and you had said, your answer was amazing, I'll let you share your answer, but really reached me because it's something that was free and it's something that anybody can really have if they want. So let's start with that. What was your answer to what is the best part of your life right now? What's amazing about what he just said is I actually did it this morning too. And we were walking this weekend and we're walking along the beach and I had asked Lori and Chris, you know, what the best part of their life is. And then, you know, Chris, of course, being him, turned it on me. And... I told them, you know, I wish I had like a really cool, profound, sexy answer. But the reality is that the thing that, especially this past month, has fueled me the most in my life has been leaving my phone at home every morning at 6 a.m. and walking by myself in silence along the beach. And first of all, I know how grateful and how fortunate I am to even be able to do that. But what's interesting is that, you know, with all that, you know, the book came out a year ago and all that's happened on the book tour. What's amazing to me and what has surprised me is that this little thing that, you know, in theory, I could have done at any point in my life has been the single thing that has fueled me. And what I had told Chris that has surprised me the most about it is that with all the change that's happened in my life the past few years, all the loss, um, Chris knows my dad passed away a couple years ago. My, uh, the day after the book came out, my grandfather passed away. Um, 30 days after that, my grandmother passed away. And there's been a lot of, frankly, just a lot of pain in the past few years. There's something really beautiful about having something that's consistent. I think what I told you last week was it doesn't matter who I am. The beach is still the beach. It doesn't matter if I'm in a good mood, if I'm in a bad mood, if I was nice yesterday or if I was a dick. Like It doesn't matter because nature is nature. And 
I've never needed that consistency so much in my life, and I'm so grateful for it. I love that. The reason I wanted to start with that was a lot of us are in a season right now. And so this weekend, is we're really aiming at returning to why we started, returning to love, returning to um, like the stuff that recharges us. And of all the A-listers you've met and all, your book being on fire and you're starting your international tour coming up and all that, the fact that your 6 a.m. walk on the beach is the best part of your life, I thought that was a beautiful example to remind everybody of those couple of staples that you need to stay in touch with because those are the best parts of your life while you're doing the do. All right, so let's ask some of the sexy stuff. Um, writing this book, I know you've told the story a thousand times, but it's such a good one. Writing this book, you're like, where am I going to get the money for this book? And one of my favorite things is how you got it. Would you share it? Yeah. Who? By the way, you've read the book? Oh my God. What's your name? Tracy, I love you. Thank you, though. That was very kind. That was very kind. And that was very kind. I appreciate that. So how'd you get the money to fund the book? So the context of this, for those of you who don't know, is, and the book is still relatively new, so it's totally cool if you don't know, is I started this when I was 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. And I was spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling. And, you know, I know people in this room are in a much different stage in life, but I don't know if you guys have gone through at some point in your life the what I want to do with my life crisis. But I was going through, I love how someone was like snickering in the back, like, oh yeah, definitely me. Um, you, You said still going through it? Well, this, you know what's funny actually? I was talking once, do you guys remember Geek Squad? So I was, I was talking, you know, with the book, I've, I've interviewed a lot of people who actually didn't get to make it into the book. And one of the people I talked to was the founder of Geek Squad. And he said something I'll never forget. He said, if you're not going through the what I want to do with my life crisis every 10 years, there's something wrong with you. And I love that. And to understand why I was going through it, you have to understand that I'm the son of Persian Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb my mom cradled me in her arms and then she stamped MD on my ass and sent me on my way. And, you know, you think it's funny, but in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween and thought I was cool. You know, that was my childhood growing up. My mom, you know, and all the normal kids had like, you know, finger paintings on the refrigerator at their house. My mom had skeleton charts. So that was my childhood. And, you know, I loved it growing up. And by the, you know, that's all a kid wants, you know, their parents' affirmation. So by the time I get to college, you know, I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. But very quickly, I found myself on that dorm room bed looking at this towering stack of biology books, feeling like they were sucking the life out of me. And at first, I assumed, you know, I was just being lazy. But very quickly, I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So now not only do I not know what I want to do with my life, I have no idea how all the people who I looked up to, how they did it. And how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room and nobody knew his name? How did Spielberg become the youngest director in Hollywood history without a single hit under his belt? You know, this is what they don't teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be a book with the answers. So I'm going to the library and I'm just like ripping through, you know, business books and biographies and self-help books. So I mean, there had to be a book on this. But eventually I was left empty-handed. And what I was so obsessed with was not a particular 
age in someone's life, but more a stage. When you have a dream, when you have an amb- a really ambitious goal, and no one's taking your calls, no one's taking your meetings, how do you find a way to break through? And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? And I thought it'd be super simple. I would just call Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else, and I'll be done in a few months. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund this journey. You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash. So there had to be a way to make some quick money. So I wish I had this mastermind to come to because I was shit out of luck. And two nights before final exams, I was in the library, you know, doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. And I'm on Facebook and I see someone offering free tickets to The Price is Right. And again, so I can get a feel for the room. Who grew up, who knows the games for The Price is Right? Give me full arms so I can see that. Okay, oh, perfect. Okay, this is, can I just tell you something? It's like at most like 99%, this is the first 100%. So we're like in a mastermind about money. Like I think we're in the right place. This is the group that watches The Price is Right. So that was a happy Gilmore quote right there. That was good. So I see someone offering free tickets to The Price is Right. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest moment. Plus, I had a problem. I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. So, and it was filming the next day and I had finals in two days. You know, I told myself it's a dumb idea to not think about it. But... I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments where an idea claws its way back into your mind over and over again. So to prove to myself it was a bad idea, I remember, you know, I was at this small round wooden table in the corner of the library and I open up my spiral notebook and I write best and worst case scenarios, you know, to prove to myself how bad of an idea it is. And I remember writing worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, Mom stops talking to me. No, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it's almost as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I said I had to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I funded the book. That's nuts. That's nuts. That was like my favorite show growing up. I would stay home sick just to watch it because it was on at like 9 a.m. or something like that. So, okay. So if that doesn't show you like resourcefulness wins, I don't know what does. Who was the toughest person to get a hold of an interview and how did you finally create that third door? It's tricky is the, the ones who are the hardest are the ones who I never got to, right? But I would say out of the ones who I did get a chance to interview, you know, it took two years to get to Bill Gates. It took three years to get to Lady Gaga. Um, with Warren Buffett, we ended up having a hack his shareholders meeting. I'll, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you the Buffett story, which is that pretty much for eight months, I had decided that my number one priority in life is to get an interview with Warren Buffett. Because I figured, you know, if there's anybody who would do an interview with a young kid, it had to be Warren Buffett. He always talks about how much he cares about young people. And I was like, this is going to be my number one focus in life. 
And that was the biggest mistake I could have made. Because what happened is, you know, I spent a, I spent like two months researching, reading every single book I could about him. I had, you know, dozens and dozens of books stacked on my desk. I was waking up at six o'clock in the morning and I wrote what I thought was the perfect handwritten letter with everything I had learned, all the research, you know, appealing to all of his, you know, backstory. And I mail it to his office and he actually sends me a handwritten response back. You know, I'm like freaking out. I like... I look at it and it's, you know, this big cursive, you know, light blue ink, loopy letters. And it's like, dear Alex. And it's like, literally, I'm like singing like hallelujah, you know. It's like, dear Alex, you know, it's so great what you're doing. However, my life has been covered many times over. Good luck, Warren Buffett. And it literally felt like he had swung his arm back and punched me in the gut. And in hindsight, I can understand why. And there's this great quote by Paulo Coelho that says, you know, when you're in school and you fail a test, it hurts. But when you're doing your life's work and you get rejected, it's completely debilitating. And that was the first time I really felt that. And I had decided, you know, every single business book talks about persistence being the key to success. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to turn the key until it finally opens the door. So I decided I am not going to stop chasing Warren Buffett until he says yes. And for the next eight months, I wrote letter after letter after letter after letter. Every Wednesday morning, I called his office over and over and over again. And Every single rejection felt like he was, you know, punching me in the gut, punching me in the face, you know, hooked to the, you know, literally it was as if I was coughing up blood. And by the end of the eight months, I was pretty much doubled over my insides feeling black and blue. And finally, you know, on one of the Wednesdays when I called Warren Buffett's assistant, she was like, look, Alex, I love your persistence, but I know Warren and I know he just doesn't change his mind. You know, when he says no, it's no. So how about as my guest, you come to our shareholders meeting? And I'm like, oh my God, Debbie, thank you so much. That's incredible. And of course I know Debbie, you know, we're on first name basis at this point. I've sent her many flowers by this point. And I'm like, Debbie, that's amazing. Um, do you think I can bring some friends? She's like, yeah, of course. And I'm like, and Debbie, isn't it true that people at the shareholders event can ask Mr. Buffett questions during the Q&A portion? She's like, Alex, Alex, Alex. You know, I know what you're trying to do. It's not possible. Yes, there's a Q&A portion, but there's 30,000 people there and only 30 get to ask questions and it's a random lottery. So your odds are pretty much one in a thousand. I wouldn't get your hopes up. What Debbie doesn't know about me is I am the king of hopes up. So me and my best friends all go to Omaha, Nebraska. We're waiting in the line outside the stadium at four o'clock in the morning, you know, the shivering cold, the doors open, you know, thousands of people are running in at the same time, you know, leather briefcases are flailing in the air, ties, khaki pants. People are like, pardon me, pardon me. It's like a business casual running of the bulls. And we get in there and me and my friends, you know, snag seats at the front and we realize we still don't have a plan on how to hack this lottery. But if there's one thing I learned from The Price is Right, it's that there's always a way. 
and we go around and we're just talking to every volunteer who works there, every person who's manning the lottery stages. And finally, someone clues us in and we find a loophole to Warren Buffett's lottery. And out of me and my five best friends, so there's six of us, out of the six of us, although we were told the odds were one in a thousand, four got winning lottery tickets. And that's how we asked our question to Warren Buffett in front of 30,000 people. That's crazy. Clap for that. That's nuts. Have you ever shared that loophole? Yeah, so pretty much. And it's. No, 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 no. I'm, it's. What's funny about it is it's so obvious in hindsight. And this is the thing that I've learned about in life, too. Like, this is what, how it applies to other. Well, I'll share the loophole, then I'll share what I learned from it. Pretty much what we did is we went around and we just asked every single volunteer. We like told them like about the mission of this book and why we've spent the past eight months working on this. And fine, you know, I would say the first 10 people we talked to was like, no chance, good luck, it's impenetrable. Until finally one person sort of clued us in. And what we learned is that, you know, they can't have one lottery station with 30,000 people or else the line will be out the door. So what they do is they have 12 different lottery stations all around the arena, which, you know, makes sense. But what they don't do is they don't put all the tickets into like one box and then pull the winners. That's the only way to actually make it a perfect lottery. They, so what they really do, there's not one lottery, there's 12 lotteries. Now, still at that point, it's 12 lotteries. In theory, your odds are still one in a thousand. But then she brought up an interesting point that not all the lotteries have the same odds because a lottery is only as hard as how many people enter it. And she said, look, if you think about the psychology of this event, the people who are sitting in the first row are the biggest Warren Buffett fans. They're the ones who have been in line since 4 a.m. And every single one of those motherfuckers are asking questions. The people literally on like floor three in the corners in the shadow, those are the people who showed up late who purposely chose seats all the way in the back so no one knows they're there. Those are the last people who want to ask a question. So the lottery station 12 has like 10 people who enter it every year. Lottery station one has a line that circles around. And that's how we hacked Buffett's lottery. That's crazy. That's awesome. Real quick, what do you guys learn so far? Super fast. Persistence, what else? Always away, what else? Resilience, okay, I love it king of hopes up. And I'll tell you the biggest thing I learned from that too. Which is the only reason we found out about the lottery was someone at Buffett's organization, you know, who volunteered, sort of clued us in and pointed us in the right direction. But what's amazing about that morning is, and I try to touch about it, touch on it in the book, but I didn't want to bog it down. Literally every single person we had talked to for like an hour told us it was impossible. And we actually didn't argue with them. The second they said it was impossible, we were like, okay, cool, thank you so much. And we went to the next person, just hoping that one person would have a different mindset. And it's true. Like, let's say you want to get a, you know, you want to do business with IBM and you call, you know, 10 people and all 10 people are like, look, we just don't do business with startup companies. We, you know, we need legacy, you know, accounts. And then finally, maybe your 15th or 25th person you speak to is like, look, we actually have a new program where, we, and like you didn't hear this from, and what's amazing is at the end of the day, it's just human beings. 
you know, and you guys know this better than anyone, which is society likes to make these like impenetrable thoughts. You know, The Price is Right is this perfectly constructed game show or Warren Buffett's Lottery. It's Warren Buffett. It's, but at the end of the day, we're all just human beings. And, you know, I'm a perfect example of how many times human beings make mistakes. And if you're just kind and honest and open about it, things work out eventually. That's awesome. Okay. Uh, show of hands so I can get an idea. Who has questions? Just so I can. Get, okay. So, Rob, we're going to start with you in the back, but you guys know the tradition. Introduce yourself and what you're grateful for. And please use the mic for all your questions. So, let's pass this back. My name's Rob, and I am. I'm grateful for the connections I'm making this weekend with everybody. It's a little deeper than it has been. My question is, now that you have your own celebrity, would you use that to create another book where you can potentially get access to bigger, better leaders and write about their secrets? Or do you want to do something different now that you have this under your belts and you want to go down a different road? So it's a great question. And there's a quote that I love from Walt Disney that pretty much says, it's not interesting to me to repeat a success. And I love that because to me is... Yeah, you know, to me, what's interesting about that Walt Disney quote is, and, it, you know, you and I were actually talking about this last week, which is there's actually so much inertia when you finally, look, for seven years, it was impossible for me to make this book a reality. But the second you sort of break through, almost like a tide, it just pulls you through. And there's so many forces, you know, to naturally do a second book and just continue. You know, it's a really, you see Deepak Chopra has written, you know, like 60 books. Because this current is so good. And, you know, it's such a fulfilling life. There's all these good reasons to do it. But what I love about the Walt Disney quote is it's just, it's not that interesting. And again, it's not about, it's not interesting to you. Because if anything, actually my readers want a second book. To me, it's like, what's interesting to me? What makes my life, what makes me more curious to do? You know, what to me is more of an adventure and, you know, it's definitely my strength and also, you know, one of my weaknesses, which is I really need to have fun for me to, like, get my ass out of bed. And to me, repeating the same steps of the past seven years isn't that exciting. Um, so the next, you know, and but at the same time, I have my same mission. You know, I'm on a mission to inspire the next generation to believe in what's possible. So while that North Star is still there, do I want to go back down the mountain and climb the same one that I already did? Probably not. That's a great question. Hi, Alex. I'm Melissa, and I'm grateful for your presence. Thank you. It's really comforting. Okay. So my That's question— such a nice thing to say. It's, you're just Thank very, you. like, I want to give you a hug. I'll give you a hug, too. <laughs> okay. Maybe later. All right. Well, we all, hugs for everybody. Okay. Um, so I feel like sometimes— That was like 5% awkward. Not 100%, but 5%. <laughs> It's cool. We're family. This is great. 
Okay. So my question is really around like um, perception of people. Sometimes I think we see them like in the media or people that we really respect from the outside and we maybe put them on a little bit of a pedestal. And then um, perhaps in an interview or conversation or as you start to peel back the layers, you realize that they're human and there can be a tendency for disappointment or judgment. So I'd love to hear kind of your perspective on that with the people that you've come in contact with. Did you ever have like this sort of expectation that they were one way and then found out they were another? And, and how did you handle that? Jesus, my whole life. Um, but I, I say that very seriously, my whole life. And, you know, if you really want to almost like Freud style, look at this book. It's literally a book about a kid who put certain people on a pedestal and, com you know, committed his life to trying to learn from them. Right? Now I'm starting to learn in therapy why I put them on pedestals and how in addition to society, you know, if you guys really want to go there, in addition to society, how I also grew up in a family where it was a pedestal structure. You know, grandpa's on the pedestal. This guy who doesn't have a job isn't on a pedestal, you know. So I definitely grew up with that mindset. And what's beautiful but also very painful about this journey is when you finally track down the people on the pedestal, you sort of see them. And I'm really grateful for this journey because while I went out to go track down, you know, Bill Gates to learn his secret to negotiating, life actually gave me the lessons I really needed to learn, which is, like you said, you know, they're human beings and some are kind, some are not kind, but in reality... Everything's gray. You know, I caught Bill Gates in a generous time in his life. You know, I guarantee you if this was 20 years ago while he was running Microsoft and an 18-year-old college student spent two years trying to get an interview with him, there would have just been so much, you know, he's the head of the biggest company. It just probably wouldn't have happened. You know, I met, so there's like so many stories too in the book. People who, you know, with Bill Clinton, I was like this close and spent years on it, and like they just wouldn't do it. So again, the biggest takeaway though, I think your question's great because the easy answer is yes, but the real answer is what did I learn from it? And there's this quote from Maya Angela where she says that the greatest gift you can give yourself, the greatest gift you can give yourself is looking around at the things you admire most, whether it's works of art, whether it's, you know, a coach, a master, a mastermind, whether it's a celebrity, whether it's a book, you know, a chef, look at something you admire most in the world and tell yourself that was made by a human being. And that person is no more human or no less human. They may be more intellectual, they may be prettier than me, they may be fun, but they're not more human than me. And what you do and what you gain by telling yourself that is you give yourself a sense of possibility. Because if a human being could create literally this, which is the fucking craziest thing on earth, it's a literally a glass rock in my pocket that can call any other glass rock on earth instantaneously, this was made by human beings. So the question is, what can you create? 
Hi, my name is Sandy, and I am grateful for you and your presence. Um, so I couldn't help but wonder while we were sharing the while you were sharing the third door if if there if you had a moment while you were like in your college dorm room before knowing that you were going to write this book that you were going to use this to get girls <laughs> like like this like <laughs> that's not my question but it was just something that I wondered because I was like this could this could kind of work this could be like a dating app <laughs> yeah so like if like if you can't if. The persistence, what like the persistence, you know what I mean? Like the yeah, the, cha- the at chasing. the same time, like one of my biggest lessons halfway through the book is that there's a such thing as over persistence. Yeah, <laughs> and that's also very important <laughs> right. when it comes to courting the opposite sex. Right. Yeah. You need to be thoughtful. Yeah. Okay. I definitely learned that the hard way too. Yeah. So my question is, how do you get people to enroll into your vision? Because I feel like you're really good at that and getting people behind you. So as business leaders, like that's the thing that we want to do. We want to enroll our audience in our vision. We want to enroll our friends, our family. So how did you do that and um, to be where you are today? You know, there's a great quote in the book by the founder of TED who said he lives his life by two mantras. And I go back to this literally every day. He says, I live my life by two mantras. Number one, if you don't ask, you don't get. If you don't ask, you don't get. Number two, most things don't work out. Most things don't work out. Now, what I love about that is it's very, number one, is very encouraging. If you don't ask, you don't get, which actually, you know, gets me out of my seat and makes me, you know, go for it. And then number two helps me deal with the pain of step one. Because it's just, the thing I love about it is they're just so true. If you don't ask, you don't get, that's true. But I think a lot of people sort of stop there when they're giving advice. They say, you know, persistence is the key to success. Or, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get, you know, we hear that all the time. We never hear step two, which is most things don't work out. I love, it's almost like a demotivational quote. And what I love about that is that's actually the balance that feels good for me because I spent the past seven years following what all these, you know, business leaders say and all these, you know, books and self-help books and this and that. And I'll tell you something that most people don't talk about, which is if you actually do what these self-help books say, I'm even going to go as hard and say, if you follow everything Chris tells you this week, yes, you'll make a lot of money. Yes, you'll have impact. You're also going to eat a lot of shit. And I mean that you're also going to be in a ton of pain because everything, I, I'm not even here, but I just know Chris as a person. I know how smart he is. The advice he's going to give you is actionable, but really fucking hard. Just the reality of it. Now, people don't put that in books because it doesn't really sell more copies. But to me, it's the truth. And, you know, what I would share with you is Coming to acceptance with that has been one of the biggest things in my life. And it's something I'm still working on. I got a question. Uh, Jonathan, I'm thankful for my sister being able to be here and thankful for her inviting me to this last year. So being able to be here. So uh, thank you. So question for you. Kind of grew up in a similar family background, Jewish, really pushed hard education, right? Go work, all this kind of stuff. So I've been fortunate enough to meet some really successful entrepreneurs and people, you know, 250 million, billion dollar net worth, all this kind of stuff. And have you seen a difference in last generations, let's say billionaires and really successful entrepreneurs versus newer generations? Because it seems like the ones I've met are very 
neurotic. They had like laser focus and kind of neglected everything else in their life to get to a point. It seems like maybe this generation kind of thinks a little differently because I idolize those people. And then when you meet them and talk to them, I'm like, I want no part of your life and what you did. Do you, do you see a difference in the people that you've been able to interview and meet in that? Yes. Yes. Um, and I think it's a really cool question because it does talk about the changing value system and demographics of, you know, the 21st century. What I will say, though, is there were kind billionaires, you know, 100 years ago, and there were asshole billionaires 100 years ago, and they st still exist today. I think what your question is really harking on is, I've never used that word before. That was cool. <laughs> I feel like I'm writing a term paper. That was cool. But I think what you're really focusing on is, there, it, you know, even, to, again, talk about this mastermind. Talk about, you know, the things that, you know, Chris and Laura are always talking about, which is you can make money and have a fulfilling life. And that is a relatively new idea. It doesn't mean it didn't exist before, but the fact that that's a mainstream discussion, from my understanding, is a relatively new thing. And, you know, even you look at Gates and Buffett, you know, where they have the giving pledge, which, you know, you pledge to give, you know, 50% of your entire wealth before you die. Uh, you, didn't have, you didn't have Rockefeller doing that. You know, although he did give away a lot of his money, there's something about what's crazy about the internet. And I think, you know, it's probably one of the biggest shifts in human history. You know, we have like the agricultural revolution, we had the industrial revolution, and, you know, the digital revolution. One of the biggest things it's changed is it's changed our ability to see other human beings, you know, see what they're going through. And airfare has a big thing, has had a big play in that too which is you can literally, you know, Rockefeller couldn't just hop on a plane and go to Africa and see how people are doing there, you know? So the world has become more visible, more transparent, and, you know, it's a double-edged sword. The hard part is that, you know, you see some really fucked up things, but the beautiful part of that is you also see ways that you can help. And I think that's what's sort of been ushering this in. You know, the Me Too movement couldn't have happened a hundred years ago for various reasons. But I also think the beauty of the internet was that it was able to start organically. It gave everyone a voice. You didn't have to go to the New York Times and beg them to public a piece. You know, public, the New York Times actually followed the social media movement for the Me Too movement. You know, Black Lives Matter started as a Twitter twin, as, as, as a trend. And, you know, it started with real human beings. But the beautiful thing about the internet is it actually empowers all of us to, you know, really speak our voice. And go into your specific question about, you know, the wealthy people of this generation. I see, you know, again, I wish it happened faster. I wish it happened more extreme. I wish all of them became more charitable and all of them became more socially aware. But the trend is in the right place. And, you know, there's that great Martin Luther King quote that says, you know, the moral, it's, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. And I think the same is true when you're looking at philanthropy and fulfillment and giving back. Perfect. You want to take the last one? Um, yes. Joel? Yeah. So my name is Joel Ashman. Um, I am grateful uh, for pickup laundry service this morning since I had pre-workout spilled all over my clothes. Um, so very grateful for that. Uh, and thank you. Honorable share. I like that. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. So, and I'm also grateful for you. You're just, like David said, just very energetic. You really capture a room and so... That's it's super awesome and entertaining and 
great to hear what you have to say. So I have a question for you. You're, it's just more on the fun side. Like, who is your absolute favorite person that you've ever interviewed? And if you could, and then I'm backing that, if you could interview any person, like just say the name right now, who would you interview and why? Favorite, you know, I think that's so funny because like growing up as a kid, I used to be like, mom, who's your favorite kid? And she's like, I love you all equally. And now as an adult, where I sort of like the book is like my child, I know it's not true. You definitely have a favorite. You just like feel publicly you can't talk about it, but whatever, fuck it, I don't care. My favorite interview, the most enjoyable one was with Quincy Jones. And, you know, those of you who read the book know how crazy... And it wasn't, I think what made it so magical was not only is he who he is, I was in almost the perfect place in life where I needed him the most. By perfect, I mean I was the most beat up. I was the most crippled by rejection. And he was able to completely transform the way I view not only success and failure, but also the way I view my life. And I can say it was the one interview where I walked in one person and walked out another. Now, my interview that I would love the most, there's a lot. There's, like, if I can do, like, a top five, it would be, like, Jerry Seinfeld, Pema Chodron, Judd Apatow, Thich Nhat Hanh, but if I had to only pick one, it would be Barack Obama. And... I like wouldn't want it to be like a televised interview. I'd want it, I know exactly what like the dream is. I want to go with him with just an audio recorder and walk through. I, it's like almost like an impossible interview, but I actually think it is possible. I want to walk through the streets of Chicago with him. And I know exactly what I want to talk about with him. And it's not about politics. When my... Dad passed away two years ago. For those of you who are Jewish, you know, there's this, you know, ritual called the Shiva where you spend like a week of mourning and then there's a memorial service, which is a really good tradition because it pretty much keeps you busy and surrounded by loved ones for that whole first week. But the flip side is because everyone has spent so much time with you, like on the eighth day, everyone goes back to their office to like, do their lives, and you're sort of in bed, you know, in the deepest well of despair. And I remember on maybe the first or second day after that, I was in bed, and, you know, it's like 11 o'clock in the morning, and I just didn't know what I was going to do that day, and I knew I didn't want to stay in bed forever, but I also didn't have the energy to see other people. And on my bookshelf, I have this habit of buying books that I intend to read, which is actually, it's actually one of my best habits. It's one of the things that I'm the most proud of. If you go to my office, there's 500 books and my joke with my friends is, they're like, have you read all of them? And I'm like, some of them, twice. But like 90% of them I haven't read yet. And I love that because I know there will be a time in my life. If someone recommends a book that I think is interesting, I'll buy it because I know there'll be a time in my life where I'll need it. But if I hadn't had bought it, I would find a reason not to get it. I almost like to like surround myself with them so when the time is right, I can just reach for it. And sure enough, you know, I had bought in Barack Obama's book, Dreams of My Father. You know, he has The Audacity of Hope, which is the famous book that launched his presidential campaign. But there's actually a book that he wrote right out of law school 
called Dreams of My Father. Um, it's much less famous, but I had bought it, you know, when I first when I first started working on the third door, I pretty much bought every book about every person who I could possibly admire or want to learn from, and I just lined my bookshelves. And sure enough, it's two days after the Shiva and I'm in bed. And I see that book. And it just had the word father in it. And no other book in my bookshelf had the word father in it. So I just reached for it. And I decided I would just spend the day at a coffee shop with the journal and that book and just, you know, see what happens. And what I didn't know is that the whole premise of this book was Barack Obama's dad passing away and Obama going on a journey to learn who he is by learning who his dad was. And that made me connect with him in a way I never could have imagined. That's who I'd want to interview next. Thanks for listening. And if you loved this episode and know of someone else who is as successful as they are generous, please pass them on to me. It would mean the world to me if you help me get this cause and this message out to as many listeners as I can. So please, if you liked what you heard, it goes a long way if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. I'll be forever grateful. And until the next episode, cheers to your success.